Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Tim Kennedy. He's a Green Beret, Special Forces sniper, Army Ranger, and a professional MMA fighter. Tim has spent most of his life fighting, whether that's been against kids in kindergarten, Special Forces selection officers, UFC champions, enemy combatants, ISIS, or his own compulsion to make a mess of his life. He's seen his fair share of pain and discovered a lot of insights through it. Expect to learn whether Tim has ever used Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in a combat situation, what motivates him to put through the discomfort he's endured, why he refused painkillers throughout his entire MMA career, why he swam a mile out to sea after getting two women pregnant and thinking he had AIDS, and much more. Tim does seem to me like the sort of person that is moving at a million miles an hour, the kind of person that I, I think is a very, very good example uh, that that can kind of be sent out as a scout to work out what it's like to live a very specific type of life and then come back and tell the rest of us. Although you might not want to live the life that he's lived, I think it's difficult to deny that there are interesting lessons that you can take from someone that's been to the extremes of, of, of pretty much everything that there is to do. Uh, I do appreciate him. I've spent a good bit of time with him since I've been out here in Austin, and every time that I'm with him, I, I learn something new. So I really hope that you enjoy this one. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But now ladies and gentlemen please welcome Tim Kennedy. Tim Kennedy. America! <laughs> you're fucking here. Sorry. I made it, man. All right, do your thing. I I'm glad it. you're here. I'm here. I did make it. I'm pumped. Thank you. Oh. What's happening? Just uh, busy bee as ever. Um, yes. Getting ready for this book and uh, expanding freedom, preserving and protecting human life. Uh, man, just like the purpose of man, I guess. I knew that you'd done a lot. And then reading the book, it feels like you've lived maybe between four and five lifetimes to fit everything in. Yeah, my mom is absolutely positive that um if like reincarnation is a real thing i'm a cat and that i have died nine times already and that i've broken the cat nine life rule because clearly i should have been dead more than nine times already and i've lived at least nine lives yes talk to me about what's driven you through childhood to get to where you are now the sort of person that's in front of me yeah the i'm dumb that's a big contributing a big contributing factor is I'm dumb. Uh, I'm really stubborn and I can't stop. And when you put those things together, you, um, you have this kind of relentless pursuit of 
in my case, it was a purpose and an idea. And like, it didn't matter as a young man without a fully developed frontal lobe, you know, like making lots of bad decisions. I still kept moving, right? Uh, even almost drowning uh, when I was, I don't know, trying to kill myself or not, but swimming out into the Pacific Ocean a couple of miles just to try to like get a, another chance at life. Um, I just kept swimming, you know, getting blown up in Afghanistan, just kept moving, um, you know, like pissing off my teammates in Iraq, being a young, ignorant narcissist. I just kept moving. So, uh, yeah, just kind of this adventure that is life that's full of failure and lots of struggles in my life. I just kept moving. Do you know where that comes from? Is that something that's just in you? Is that, do you feel like that's heritage? I think a little nature and a little nurture, you know, uh, my family, I'm surrounded by greatness. You know, my, my grandpa came from the greatest generation, you know, World War II hero, um, you know, literally dropped bombs on Nazis type guy and um, survived the Great Depression, you know, the patriarch of our family and setting everything up. And then my dad, a uh, heroic but undercover narcotics officer, my big brother, all my uncles, Vietnam War, like I'm, I'm surrounded by some greatness. strong genetics. In yeah, that just then. like some strong stuff. And then in the environment that I grew up in, ordinary was just not accepted. Like plain average was just not ever an allowed state of being, you know, it was uh high achievers in every, in everywhere I looked and um, doing anything else besides the best that you could do was just not enough. Did you always know that you wanted to be in the army? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, at North County Christian school. Um, the same school that, this jerk made fun of Laura LeCarrie because she had a, a new haircut that looked kind of boyish and um, shame on her mom for putting that bowl on her head and then cutting her hair. But that's what happened. And, um, and he made fun of her and I followed him up onto the playscape and I punched him in his mouth and I pushed him off, which broke his arm and I got paddled in the, how old are you? I was four. Yeah. And, um, but in the same time period, we journaled, like, and I still have this journal today. It's like this little tiny, you know, like has wallpaper glued on the outside of it. I'm not sure if all kindergartners or kindergarten made their kindergartners do this, but inside of it, it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And like, who is your family? What does your house look like? And you draw all of these things. And what do I want to be when I grow up is a picture of a camouflage guy jumping out of an airplane. And a dude wearing a martial art gi doing karate. You're kidding me. I'm dead serious. So there's a couple of things that are happening here. One, I very, very early on knew right and wrong and that I was going to stand up to bullies. And two, I kind of knew what I wanted to become. And uh, the journey to become that was long, arduous. Meandering. Yeah. <laughs> Meandering. <laughs> Meandering. I got distracted. Like Lots of living <laughs> yeah, before yeah. I finally, but man, I got penalized every time I went astray. You know, like I knew, so? like thinking I had AIDS. That's, that's a good example of it. Knocking up a, a bunch of women. Another great example of it. That was prior to the swim out to the ocean, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. You know, uh, wrecking my motorcycle. I'm not saying that my, my grandpa died of emphysema by my choices, but it felt like it. You know, like every time that I wasn't doing what I was put on this planet to do, I was the, the consequences 
of those bad decisions like had serious repercussions. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. So radical responsibility, you know, Jocko's put this forward, yeah. taking complete responsibility for the things that you do. I do sometimes wonder if there's such a thing as too much responsibility where you take responsibility for things that you don't have responsibility for. And it sounds like maybe that creeps in. Yeah, there, there might be a little creep, um, but you absolutely in the extreme ownership Jocko approach to this. If you look at all of the things that were going wrong in my life, almost all of them were my doing like there were my choices and the repercussions from those, you know, like I go to an orgy with a bunch of girls after a fight and one of the girls has HIV and she walks into the gym. It's like, Hey, I have HIV is like, cool. This is on me. There's no other blame there. Right. Yes. Um, it wasn't somebody else's pain. No, hundred <laughs> percent. My penis. My penis. Um, you know, like putting babies in a few different women at the same time. Like there's nobody else, no, nobody else's penis in there. Like that's mine. And, uh, you know, like, failure at work, um, you know, like indecisiveness in school, like all of those things were, those are my decisions. And then compounded by, you know, as we deal with stress, external stressors, you have coping mechanisms and, and those things are the, how you deal with all of these different struggles. Well, the really important ones to me at the time, one of them, my grandpa was dying in front of me. You know, every breath was just slightly less than the prior breath. So, you know, my motorcycle, like that was my, it was me that crashed that, you know, like I'm going down 90 miles an hour on highway 46. You know, like that's a, that's a me choice when that meth, sure that meth had pulled out, you know, like had I been going 55, I could have been able to stop. Um, instead I, you know, did not. So I, I definitely hear you, but, um, I'm going to go ahead and accept ownership for the vast majority of the problems in that specific time period. Okay. So then when you do decide to get into the armed forces, you do decide to join yeah. special forces. Yeah. Is that the beginning of a path where you begin to take a little bit more responsibility? I love how you're like putting in a lot of um, the adjectives and, and pronouns in there because I, I was not yet like beginning to, absolutely. I was beginning, I was starting. This was like definitely not a turn. That In the hero movie, this is not like that moment where there's like hero music. Not and, the call to adventure yet. Yeah, it's, and like, it's like, oh, I mean, he's going to do the right thing now. That's not happening. No, he's going to continue to fuck up for ages. Ages. Episode five. Yeah. Like season 10, he yes. might start to get things a little bit a less A little shit. bit. Yeah. yeah, that's how this, that's how that journey was. So lots of really shameful, regretful moments with lots of humbling experiences. Okay, so I've heard you talk about this a good bit. I've heard you talk about the fact that sort of shame and reflecting on um, deficiencies, situations where you didn't know enough, do enough, have the capacity, that that's one of the driving forces for you. Yeah. But for a lot of people, when they have that shame, it, it causes inertia, right? It doesn't cause movement. Yeah, that's dumb. But you understand why that might happen. That no, somebody it's dumb. Talk to me about that. So if I, if I like step on a grill and the grill is, I don't know, let's just say, how what's the temperature of a grill? 400 degrees, 500 degrees? Too hot. Okay, it's hot, right? And I'm standing on that grill and I'm burning. Why would I stay there? Like there, there is a beautiful purpose to pain. And a pain is a thing that moves us. Emotional pain, like you get cheated on by your girlfriend and you're like, ow, that really, really hurt. I'm going to go ahead and break up with this relationship and I'm going to look for different characteristics in the next partner. Cool. Got it. I am going to um, pick up this paper the wrong way and it gave me a paper cut. Oh, that really hurt, right? Like I'm going to pick up paper differently to know the not to get a paper cut the next time. I'm not going to slide my finger on the long edge of the paper. Like, so p 
pain has this really, really important purpose. And I don't know why people dole it. People like intentionally avoid it. People deny that it ever happened. They ignore these mistakes and they ignore these failures. They ignore these struggles and they disc. And then like 30 years later, they're paying a a few hundred thousand dollars to talk to a counselor to like work through these experiences or, or just hear me out. Acknowledge that they're real and that everybody has them and move. And things get better. You don't burn alive on that grill. You don't cut your hand on paper. You don't get cheated on in the next relationship. And you slowly start having this improved life over just acknowledging that pain serves a purpose. And instead of doling it with whatever pills you're popping or whatever you're drinking, or whatever yoga class you're doing, and they're all, all different ways to dole it, just be real and be present. And it's, it's a shame in 2022 where we curate and editorialize everything about our lives and we hide our failures and we use a, a new filter to, to disguise our blemishes on our face or the scars and, and, and uh, lines around my eyes. You know, like there's a lot of living here. I want to know it. When I was fighting the UFC and uh, in strike force, I would never let the doctor ever use any painkiller anytime he had to stitch me closed. Didn't you get stitched closed by some dude with a, a cigarette? in your face yeah, and yeah. twine or some yeah, yeah. shit. That was, that, that was pre-UFC. Um, yeah, I think it was fishing line. I'm pretty sure it was fishing line. He had a bone necklace hanging from his his neck. Um, that was at an Indian reservation long before Cardboard I- Cardboard on the floor and yeah. bits of rope yeah. around the bar yeah. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like this, at Strike Force, IFL, WC, UFC, you know, like they had proper doctors and uh, stitching us up. And matter of fact, the I think his hashtag's like UFC doc. And he, he sews up everybody and he tweets often about how uncomfortable he was stitching me up because I would sit there with my eyes open as he's, as he's closing my cheek and he's like, no, I'm going to give you a local. I'm like, you give me a local, I'm just going to walk out and I'm going to be the way that I am or you can stitch me up. And, and he's like, I never knew what to do with this dude. But then I just sit there and Tim wouldn't move and I'd sew his face closed because I wanted to feel that pain because I made a mistake in there in the octagon and I didn't want to dole the pain because there should be a consequence for that pain. And, uh, and I wanted to remember that pain in the future. Talk to me about the difference between your first and your second deployment when you went away, because the first one you were a part of a team mm-hmm. and the second one, you were very much alone on your own. Yeah. Give me a sense there because there's kind of this romantic lone wolf, like no fucks, no support needed kind of thing, right? Yeah. That, that can be, put over the top of a character like you. Yeah. But what's it like that first time? What's the genesis of that? And the reason I ask this is there are a bunch of people listening who think fucking yes. Like I want this. I want to be a sovereign individual with agency who goes after it and gets after stuff in his life. But the first time that you go, that first beginning of the rock moving up the hill can be pretty uncomfortable. And I want you to hear your sort of sensation around that. And it's supposed to be uncomfortable. You know, the, uh, the Special Forces ODA, the Operational Detachment Alpha, which is like the 12-man A-team, right? Like the TV show, the A-team. Like it's, it's, it's the collective of all of the best and the brightest put into a team. The motherfuckers of the motherfuckers. That's right. And dude, and they are hammers. Like I walk down halls of heroes. I mean, these guys are giants to my left and to my right, both emotionally, physically, mentally. Like they're just the most incredible humans on the planet. And, um, and I'm the weakest link. You know, I am the newest, I am the weakest, I'm the slowest, um, 
I'm the fastest to judgment. I'm, I'm the quickest to anger. I'm all of the things that I shouldn't be. And the refiner's process, you know, like on, on my war table up there, if we started playing with all of the instruments of violence, all of them were forged in a really similar way, in a really violent way. You know, they, they took a, a clump of something, they heated it, and they pounded the impurities out of it. And that's what a team does. You know, like I showed up as a lump of uselessness and through time, through grace, through forgiveness, through suffer, suffering, through, I mean, I guess now they, uh, they call it hazing, but like that's part of the process that, um, that shape expedited learning. Yeah. And it is so important. So important. So that first team, that first deployment, I'm surrounded by the best and the brightest and I'm learning painfully what it means to be a team member. Thank God for that, because I would be dead in Afghanistan. Many times over. So many times. Had they just not shaped who I was, how I'd respond, how I would think, how I would speak, uh, not just capability and lethality, but also survivability, durability. And then you go off on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not by design. I was supposed to go over as a sniper team, but um, my teammate my sniper teammate had a, so in the military, there's this like ever existing joke about the girl that cheats on the guy while he's deployed. And we actually have a name for her. And um, so that's what happened to him. He deployed and his, what's her name? Jody. Jo oh, I've heard that in movies. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty there. Okay. <laughs> so like every time Joby or yeah, what is it, Jody or Joby, um, every time that that soldier goes away, she's looking for the next convenient guy. And that, you know, it was all pretty strategic for, for him and for her. So when he left, she drained his bank account and, um, you know, filed for divorce and sold all of his stuff. So, you know, he's in war and in crisis mode and thank God special forces for once, they never do this, like actually cared about the soldier. And they're like, there's no way he could have been combat effective, right? Like World War II, it's like, sorry, bro, you're already in Europe. Like, in, enjoy the beach. Hopefully you can make it up it or you're dead. Um, this was this was really cool of the army to bring him back and let him recover his life a little bit. So it wasn't so catastrophic. Yeah, but um, for you. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. So for me, it left me with nobody. Dick in hand. Yeah. Just looking <laughs> with a big smile and be like, what can I get myself into? What kind of trouble can I find? And uh, I don't know if the stars had aligned, if uh, if fate is real, but I ended up being assigned to uh, the, the coalition, which is like this group of special operations. And I was put directly under one sergeant major who is like kind of directly in charge of me. And he was the liaison for all of these special operations units. So every time like the British or the can soft or the Australian soft, any of time those guys would be stepping out the door. Uh, you know, there was a USASOC level one special forces sniper that was happily ready to be both a liaison, a reconnaissance or a snapper ice sniper asset for those teams. So it was like my wet dream totally coming true. I got to go work with like the coolest international forces on the planet. And it's like me, you know, like it's just me. It was cool. Until it's not cool when, uh, you know, 
it's cool when everything's going right and you're kicking ass. And, uh, and then it's super not cool when you don't really have a team, the bomb goes off, ID explodes, vehicle in front of you just vaporizes, killing almost everybody inside of it and ending up on top of your hood. And this is like the beginning of a multi-day gunfight, you know, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm with some Americans, but I'm mostly with the Czech special forces and, and like, I don't have my own team, you know, like, um, like nobody put me in for a purple heart because there's nobody to write a reward for me. Like I don't have a captain, you know, there's nobody to put me in for anything because like there was no team. There's nobody like, thank God I had friends and brotherhood because Mike Keller saved my life. Mike Irish saved my life in this particular oh, yeah. battle. Yeah. Mike oh. Goble saved my life. I mean, one instance I had like divine intervention. Is this where you run out of ammo? Oh yeah, that happens. That's but you run out of thing. ammo within like 20 minutes. Or oh something. yeah. <laughs> like you, when you think that like a special forces detachment could run out of out, like how is this possible? Like be surrounded by 400 Iranian freedom fighters, um, foreign fighters. And, uh, they're not fighting for freedom. They're fighting for enslavement. I don't mean that word freedom. People call them freedom fighters, but they're really like, what's the opposite of freedom? I don't know. That's the type of fighters they are. Okay. So insert that word. Yes. The antithesis of freedom. Yes. Pricks. Anyways. So they're kicking our ass. I'm like crawling on the ground, eventually trying to find ammo. But Mike Keller, when the vehicle in front of me explodes and uh, like, you know, pink mist everywhere, Humvee lands on top of my Humvee. My Humvee starts backing out to get away from this Humvee as like RPGs are sco- sh- like skipping off of my hood and rounds are like ping, 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 ping in the side of this Humvee as PKM rounds are just like ting, 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 ting. Mike Keller gets up to the side of this hill. Mike Irish, who is driving, he's like, oh my God, those guys are still alive. So he like hops out of the vehicle. and I was like, Mike, where are you going? So he runs back down to where we just got blown up. So I hop out of the vehicle very begrudgingly. I did not want to go with him. And I was really mad that he just was being heroic. And he runs down there and we get down there. I'm carrying my sniper rifle at this time. I have an SR-25 sniper rifle with a suppressor on the end of it. And uh, we're trying to pull these bodies out from underneath this overturned Humvee. When the assault line of the Taliban run across the the ambush zone, which we call the X, like the kill zone, and all this Taliban, they're like 10 feet from me, 10 feet, and I'm trying to move my sniper rifle as I'm holding this half cut off body that's dripping bile and crap and blood all over me, and uh, and then I'm, I'm sure I'm concussed at this moment, but the thing that really gives me the real concussion is Mike Keller in the 50 Cal M2 machine gun turret position this is God like I don't care what you believe there's only one way that you can describe how Mike was able to use a machine gun with a 50 caliber machine gun and shoot rounds around Mike and I and vaporize this assault line they just like there were people there this isn't like movie like Rambo and they're like you see guts flying through the air it was like there were there were there were people right here and then there were no more people like they just disappeared not like pink mist and like an HBO movie where like a sniper takes a shot. I mean, they were just like there and then they weren't. And that was Mike shooting 50 cal rounds, like zipping them up and around. Just weaving them between we- weaving his them teammates. through them. Yes. Wild. Wild. So we drag these soon to be dead bodies up and um, we try to save them for a while. They ultimately die. We get a few ammo resupplies. We have AC-130 gunships, F-15s, F-18s, F-16s, Apache helicopters. Like when you, um, actually, I think they made a movie called Broken Arrow. 
They did, right? Yeah. Like broken arrow is a term where if you are a ground force commander and you say broken arrow, this like goes all the way back to the, like the Colonel Custer days where he got surrounded. And if you don't send, send every single resource that you have available right now, we're all going to die. That, that's what that term means. Okay, that's the Hail Mary call of all yeah, Hail Mary. That is like, if there is a plane in the air, it comes to me. If there's a helicopter that has enough gas to come here and has one bullet left, it will there's fly There's a guy here. with a hammer, bring him. Yes. Yeah. Cool, you got a screwdriver? I'll take you. <laughs> You're on. Yeah, that, that, is, that is what this call means. So when they called um, Broken Arrow, it's like, we're all going to die. Every single one of us is not going to make it out of this valley. And uh, so then like, it changed slowly from all of us maybe dying, probably dying, to everyone around us dying and us still thinking we're going to die. Which leads me to then Mike Goebel. I'm walking up to a door where I think we're three days into this gunfight. I still haven't slept. I still have a concussion. I have like black, I have like hours of, of this gunfight that I don't remember. Um, I have moments where like we crest a hill and I find the support um, camp for the Taliban and there's like a bunch of Taliban in front of us. I'm so, I'm now somehow in a Czech vehicle. Like I'm with the Czech special forces. Like I left the This Americans. kind of sounds a little bit to me like some of the after parties that I've been back to. Yeah. Like this is the same discordant story of like, and then before I knew it, I'm in this villa and then I'm on a golf course and yeah. I have no idea how I got here. And I, no clue. Yeah. Okay. The brain's wild. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Especially when it's like damaged. Yes. You know? And, uh, I'm walking up to a door and we just got shot at from this compound and Mike Goble, it felt like he hit me. He shoved me so hard. Both hands like, like a rugby slam, double leg John Jones takedown. You like insert the most athletic movement you can, most violent. He shoves me in front of this door and we kind of split apart as his energy pushes me back. The energy of him pushing me back pushes him back and then the door disintegrates as machine gun rounds just trace through here and splinter this door. I never heard a bolt drop. I never heard a weapon go from safe to fire. There's no way that he heard it. Because when, when we finally get in this door, we find the machine gun nest. It's about 20 meters back inside of this compound. So there's no explanation to how Mike knew that this door was about to get disintegrated. Did you ask him? Uh, he's dead now. Did you get to ask him before he was dead? No, we fought. Uh, we got in a fist fight like two days later. Yeah. Best of friends. Best of friends. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So these sort of situations, yeah. does that make stepping into the octagon to punch somebody else in the face under a relatively now restrictive rule set with a guy in there whose job it is to make sure that if anything close to serious happens, that everything stops? Does that make that seem a bit like, not silly or farcical, but kind of I mean, yeah, tame? Yes and no. Like I, I would walk into the octagon over, overly relaxed. And do you think that that was contributed to by your time in Texas? Yeah, yeah. Like Leo Korolinski, when I was fighting for the IFL, I remember the first time that he ever saw me fight, he's like, what is wrong with you? Like you need to be excited. Many things. Yeah. Like you need to be, you need to be excited or like nervous. Like what, like, what are you doing? I was like, Leo, it's fine, bro. Just like go sit down. I'm going to go fight in a minute. He's like, you are going to go fight in a minute. Can you like recognize that you're about to go fight? I said, yeah, yeah. I go out, knock the guy out in the first round. 
Leo, can you be cool now? So it took like 10 fights for Leo to realize that like, meh. But everything's even in fighting. You know, so while I would walk in so um, relaxed, you know, not stressed, the weight class is very specific. You know, your opponent is picked so that you guys have a competitive fight because nobody wants to watch, you know, like Mike Tyson fight a you know, a prime Mike Tyson fights a 43-year-old fat white dude that came off the couch. Like, that's not interesting. They want to see, like, two apex predator peak athletes go head-to-head, you know, gorilla versus bear, you know, lion versus polar bear. Like, that's what we're looking for. So, you know, the, even the referee, like, his, pur- his purpose yet there is to make sure that we not just are safe, but that we also fight under the constrictions and the limitations that are the rule set, which, um, which makes it very competitive, especially when you start getting up to title fights. And, you know, like I spent the last 10 years of my career ranked top 10 in the world. So like, I'm only top, I'm only fighting top 10 guys, you know, like the Michael Bisbings and the Robbie Lawlers and the Jacques Um, and that, you know, that's hard. Like there's no, that's hard. What's the difference between training for fighting and training for violence? Training for combat violence? There's no difference. No, they're um, training is training. I mean, have you used uh, BJJ in a combat situation? Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, in Iraq. Uh, kind of humiliating story, so I'm not going to tell all of it. I'll just give you the high points. Um, we do a call out. We go to a bomb maker's house and we tell everybody to come out. This is not in the book. And um, almost everybody comes out, but some, one guy stays in there and and we ask the family, who is this and why is he in there? And they're like, he's crazy. The language barrier, it was d- difficult to determine if he was like jihad crazy or if he was like special needs crazy. We later find out that he was the latter. And um, so when I go in there, with my team and we do a uh, direct action, like hard knock assault, you know, like flashbangs, like this guy, as I, as I turn the corner, I'm the number two guy. Number one guy goes right. I went left as a center fed room. And this guy was like, Rah! and he like came, I butt stroke him, breaking every bone in his face. And then like he grabs onto me as he's falling. And in my mind, he's like grabbing all of my stuff on my kit, right? Like I got a knife here. I got my pistol here. I have uh, some flashbangs. I got my grenades back here. So I Kimura, I grab his arm. I grab his wrist. I reach over his arm. I Kimura and I break every bone in his, in his shoulder, his arm. Like everything is like turned to dust and powder. But the Kimura is a jujitsu move. And I just did it in, in violent war settings. And like it is very great technique to do in competition but like it works just fine Kimura is also the the best technique for weapon retention like we use goosenecks and finger flexes to uh wrist locks to get weapons and knives out of people's hands we use the americana when we're in mountain position we use neon belly to give me a chance to like look around to make sure it's like yeah it's a lot of similarities and the brain and the body are shaped in the same way like training's training and the reason that you see so many high-level athletes in special operations that are coming from really, really violent-type sports. You see lots of wrestlers. You see lots of water um, water polo players. You see lots of rugby, lots of football. And they're coming from environments that training like this is really normal. So when they go to Special Forces Selection or they go to the Q course, they're like, eh, 
Yeah. This I've is been cool. here before. Yeah. I've been here before. Everyone else is like, what is going on? Like, my, I've never, my feet have never felt like this. Like, and I did two days in Texas during football f- camp. This isn't, this isn't anything. You're spinning a lot of plates. Uh, you headmaster of a school now, sheepdog response. Headmistress, don't pronoun me wrong. Sorry, yeah. used to identify, uh, yeah. now identifies yeah. as headmistress. Yeah, I'm the headmistress of the school. <laughs> There's someone listening to this <laughs> that <laughs> thinks, this sounds fucking dope. Like, I, I'm motivated, I want to be this person, I want to have control over my life. I'm going to set my alarm for 6am, I'm going to find a BJJ close to me, I'm going to do all of this, 5.30, sorry. 4.30 if you're Jocko. Yeah. Um, That's too early. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's got it wrong. That's just too much. Um, there's someone that's out that, that's thinking that's what they want to do. But when the alarm goes off tomorrow morning, they're going to hit snooze. Yeah. So what is it that's causing you to not hit snooze? But you can't relegate it to a single decision like that. You know, there I've made like millions of decisions leading up to like, I went to bed on time, you know, like I had an amazing and intimate night with my wife, you know, like she fell over sweaty and smiling. I went and hopped in the shower, came back in bed and like, I'm going to sleep hard. Right. Like not like, Figuratively, not literally. Yes. You know, like, perfect. Long day of work. Had two great workouts. Super productive. Got to spend time with my family. Had a fantastic meal. All of those little decisions led to that alarm going off at 5.30 and me popping up and be like, nice. And it's playing, uh, let's see, this morning was uh, Life on Mars. That was my alarm this morning. And uh, it's rad, you know? It's like, boom, and I'm up. Loving this song, ready to go after the day, but I wasn't ready for that alarm by it going off. I was ready by like thousands of other things that I did before that. So like you can't narrow it to a single moment. You have to look at the millions of other opportunities that you had to make the right decisions. And that trend, all of those collectively will start making a difference will start mattering. It's about speeding up and slowing down. I think that if momentum is taking you toward a uh, suboptimal place, a bad place, maybe all of your effort simply needs to go into slowing that momentum down yeah. for a little while. And you, it would be great if you could go and hit every workout and hit, do all of these things. But you've probably got some bad habits that you could do with deprogramming first before you try to add some of the new good ones in. And that's going to happen step by step yeah. by step. Well, this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning about like, how do you know that those bad habits are are putting you in trajectory negative? Because you reflect and it hurts. Yeah. You feel the, the pain. Yeah. That's right. Because you remember the pain. Well, they say that true hell is when the person that you are meets the person you could have been. Yeah. Man, that'd be terrible. You feel the delta between where that person is and where you are. So something that I've considered you've got this very heroic story. The book's fantastic. Lots of different things that you've done and achieved. And, you know, during the 15 minutes that I was late here, you've built a new gun and, and, and fucking organized a bunch of other stuff for your school and other things like that. What I'm always interested in is the price that people pay to be themselves, especially high achievers. What's the price that you pay to be Tim Kennedy? Bad knees. My knees are trashed. (laughs) Um, the, uh, emotional baggage you know like i i watched like a um i was watching the movie the searchers with john wayne not saying dude you need to watch this movie good yeah it's old it's it's old and it's raw and it's primal story of john wayne um frontier texas new mexico arizona type and um they're homesteaders building 
their existence carving in Comanche Apache land. And um, they see a fire in a, in a, a smoke trail in a, in a nearby kind of near about a day's ride. And so they, they head out to check it out. And it was a lure to bring John Wayne away from his brother's house where his nephew, his niece and his sister-in-law were all there. The Indians come in, they kill everybody. They kill his brother. They kill his wife. They, they kill his nephew and they steal this little girl. And John Wayne comes back to find their raped bodies and burnt male bodies. And uh, like, this is early. This is sixties and his missing niece. So the movie, the searchers is he then goes this whole entire movie. It's about 20 years of this movie goes on where he's searching for this. That's about 15 years, this little girl. And he is a racist, violent man. He fought for the Confederate army. Now, like every engine, red blood, half breed, you can, like, you could just see the chip on his shoulder and you don't know by the end of this movie, what he's going to actually do when he finds this little girl. Like, is he going to kill her? Like she is now an Indian. She's been with them for 15 years. And as he's like running down or he's, he's on the, this horseback chasing this little girl as she's running away from him out of fear of this white man. as he's trying to rescue this little girl. I am bawling my eyes out in like relating to so many things, like having been to so many places and having so many cultural questions of like, what is right? What is wrong? Like what is right for him? Should he have killed all these people after they killed his family? Like, is that right? Is that justice? Is that vigilante justice? Is this like, where's the justice here? And like, what is supposed to happen to this girl? And, and all these questions. So the, pr the price is bad knees. So scars and stripes, in the name of the book, uh, like there's lots of scars on the outside. Clearly, as you look at my face, you know, like my ears and like my orbital sockets, my hands, my knees, um, you know, and then there's scars on the inside. There's plenty of them and stripes in the military are symbols of you having experienced things like your number of deployments, your time overseas, how long you've been in the military, like what rank you are. All of those things are, are testaments to who you are. So like, what, what is the cost to be me? Like there is a lot of pain. Talking about scars and stripes, what's your favorite scar and what's your favorite stripe? Um, favorite scar is probably this one right here, Robbie Lawler. And, uh, he threw an uppercut. He's a Southpaw. My head was on the center as I was doing a double leg against the cage. We drilled in training my head position probably a hundred times. And, uh, in the fight, I thought I was faster. I thought I was better. And, uh, he blasted me with this uppercut just like we knew he would in the exact same way that we had game planned him to do it. And uh, so I carry that scar in. I prepared properly. I trained correctly. I had all of the knowledge and, and, and resources to be able to not have this scar. Uh, but then I went on to brutalize him for 15 minutes and ultimately like win a pretty big, big fight over, you know, UFC welterweight champion. Um, but like, so I wear this chunky scar on my nose with, with pride and then um, I think a lot of people would talk about their rank or they'd talk about their combat stripes um, in special operations where like when you go through that book, when we went through the legal review, most of the names in this book are dead now. And uh, most of my friends, like 
literally most of my friends. My sniper partner, sniper school, dead. Sniper partner in deployment, dead. Mike Goebel, dead. You're like you when you go through that legal review, the woman that did it, the lawyer was like, she started crying about 10, 10 names in. I was like, just wait till Memorial Day. Like imagine how I feel, you know? So the stripes of me still just being here, of uh, which are your, your years in service, I'm proud of those because like, like the song Rooster, you know, you can't kill me yet. What's it feel like to reflect on the fact that so many people that you admired so much that helped you become the person that you are now aren't here to see the person that you are now? And ironically, the ones that are here are the ones that just want to see me fail. So it's kind of wild. But um, that's strange, isn't it? Yeah. I wonder if that's selection somehow. I wonder if the ones, what is it? I think about you this die, all the die time. the hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Yeah. I think about it all the time. It's like, why is this one? Like that one, that one, why is that one still alive? And that one's dead. You know, like, yeah, it's wild. You go down that why, if, that what if, why question, man, that is a dark hole. Yeah. Be the bottom of the bottle on that one. But that's one of the motivations for you, right? You say you don't want to feel helpless. You yeah. don't want to feel like you don't know. There's that story about, I think you were an EMT when you were 18 or something, and you you were trying to fix some girl, and then the guy came over that knew what he was supposed to do and said, yeah. you need to find somebody else. Yeah, I got this. Yeah, I got this. Yeah, Tom Way. Tom Way, I love you. Uh, Is he still about? He's still about. Good man. Yeah. We, go, we got one. Yeah, there's one. <laughs> yes. Sir. Um, and uh, yeah, that 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 frustration of not knowing what to do and that helplessness is something that like, like that is a pain that like you'll carry forever. And that is a shame. That is a humiliation of like standing there. Like, I don't know what to do. Like had I trained, had I prepared, um, had I made more of those right decisions, I wouldn't be standing here. I would already be taking action and saving somebody's life. But instead out of whatever selfish decisions I made prior, I don't know what to do. And now this person might die. So yeah, it's a big motivator. What can you tell us about what you're doing next? Yeah, that's tricky. When does this podcast come out? Uh, when do you want it to come out? Well, if, uh, if we do it in like two weeks, then I can say that I'm going to Eastern Europe okay. tomorrow and that I will be going to work with Save Our Allies in a humanitarian assistance type role to help. Uh, is this part of your NGO? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Save Our Allies is a non-profit, non-government organization that goes to contested areas to, to see. Are you lily padding these people out? Yep. Cool. Some of them. Yeah. I don't know if like Finland, Romania, Poland, and Hungary count as lily pads because they're kind of just neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, but it works. Cool, man. Tim Kennedy, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, dude, I, I love what you do. I'm very, very happy that I'm in the same city as you. I'm looking forward yeah. to connecting hopefully after this as well. For sure. Uh, good luck, man. Stay Thank safe. You. I think we need more people like you. Thanks for the chat. Yeah.